You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Now heed me, for my time is short. You will be haunted by three spirits. Without their visit, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. You shall behold the visions of a Christmas past, a Christmas present, and a Christmas yet to come. Ever wonder why the most famous Christmas story is also a ghost story? I'm talking, of course, about Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. First published in 1843, it has never been out of print. It tells the story of a man who is tormented by a series of ghosts on Christmas Eve, including the moaning, chain-rattling specter of his former business partner. The success of A Christmas Carol, and later films like Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, shows us that the things that go bump in the night aren't entirely chased away by all that warmth, joy, and cheer of the holiday season. The truth is, though Halloween is long over, the darker parts of our imagination are still perfectly at home, hiding in the shadows cast by the fire and all those pretty colored lights. And it has been that way for a long time. The custom of telling tales of wonder and wayward spirits during long winter nights dates back millennia to early celebrations of solstice and Ewell, a time of feasting, drinking, and sacrifice during midwinter to honor the dead and pray for peace, prosperity, and a good harvest. This was the time of the Wild Hunt, when many believed the veil between this world and the next was worn thin and spirits could walk the earth. It seems that spine-tingling stories are best shared in the depths of winter, huddled around a blazing fire during the coldest, darkest nights of the year. And it's that contrast between light and dark, warm and cold, in here and out there, that makes these stories so thrilling. And no story setting is better suited to evoke that kind of feeling than the vast northern wilds. And though we tend to see this tradition as more European, from Icelandic sagas to Victorian novellas, Canada is home to quite a few winter ghosts of its own. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, in the spirit of the holiday season, I'll be sharing two mysterious winter tales from Canada's vast and frozen north. They come from opposite ends of the country, one from the west in the southern wilds of the Yukon Territory, and one from the east along the southeastern shore of Labrador. Neither are technically Christmas stories, but with their snowy winter setting and themes of the supernatural and salvation, I think they fit the spirit of the season and they're perfect for sharing on a cold winter's night. So stoke the fire, grab some hot chocolate, and I'll tell you stories of mysterious premonitions and notorious ghosts in two winter legends of the Canadian North. Part 1. The Dream Girl of the Yukon Winter had settled in the Yukon by the time dawn left the goldfields. The long, pale blue lakes of the southern valleys had transformed into sparkling slabs of white, and the boats and canoes that once plied the open waters gave way to dog sleds and snowshoes that left trails in their wake. 
He didn't like leaving so late. As a man who was fond of the busy streets of Juno and the crowded decks of sternwheelers, a journey by dog sled felt far too lonely. So Don was thankful when he came upon a group of hunters who, like him, were heading south to Alaska. They decided to travel together and set off across Tagish Lake, eventually making camp on one of the many islands at its center. Huddled in a natural slope of the island and sheltered from the worst of the wind by a few ragged trees, the group built a fire, ate their supper, and sat and talked as the dogs played on the ice and the sun slumped behind the mountains. When sleep came, it came easy. Lying in the dark, watching the firelight and the shadows of his companions play on the nearby trees, Don felt that he could finally relax, comforted by the fact that he was finally not alone. When Don opened his eyes, the fire was low, and the full moon was shining bright, glinting off the surrounding snow and casting the frozen lake in a soft, ghostly light. A sudden shadow appeared at the lake shore and stretched across the camp to rest at his stomach. He looked up and saw a young woman, barely nineteen, standing barefoot in the snow. Her cotton summer dress rippled in the wind, blowing with the grace and ease of the new-fallen powder that danced and swirled across the island. Walking softly along a path of moonlight, her hair was silver flame. The red fingers of the dying fire were just enough for Dawn to see her frowning face. She seemed unfazed by the cold. He sat up in surprise and asked her who she was. She smiled warmly. Her name was Ethel Williams. Where did she come from? Syracuse, New York. There was no hint of an explanation for how or why this thin young woman in a light summer dress had traveled over 2,500 miles and braved the deep cold of the north to stand there beneath the moon. But before he could open his mouth again, she raised a hand in warning. I know you plan to cross the lake, she said, but it will be disastrous if you do. The ice is not fully formed near the southern shore. It is only open water covered by drifting snow. Travel 25 miles upriver and cross there. Don woke to the howling of dogs. He bolted upright and looked to where the woman had been, but she was gone. A light snow was falling. His companions were packing up the camp and getting ready to leave. He leapt from his sleeping bag and ran to them and told them about his dream. They should change course, he said. Go off trail and avoid the freezing water of the lake. A girl in his dream had told him so. They laughed, called him crazy, and left him there, joking that they'd see him in Juno in two days and would have a whiskey waiting. Don felt like an idiot, but he couldn't shake the feeling that, dream or not, he should listen to the woman's advice. He watched the hunters shrink on the horizon before he climbed into his sled and, much to his dog's confusion, went upriver and crossed at the Narrows. When he finally arrived in Juneau, he did so a little later than he hoped, but safe and dry just the same. He asked after his new friends, but learned that he was the first person to arrive in days. Fearing the worst, Don assembled a search party and led them to the southern shore of Tagish Lake. The first thing they saw were the upturned canoes, then the tents and sleeping bags floating on the icy water. 
Don's blood grew cold as he realized the dream girl had been right. And whoever she was, he owed her his life. Part 2. Who was Ethel Williams? In the spring of 1916, a university student and society girl received a mysterious postcard in the mail. It was a black-and-white picture of a sled and dog team in the snow. Written in pen on the back was an unfamiliar address in Juneau, Alaska, and these enticing words. If you will write to this address, I will tell you why I have sent this card. Naturally, Ethel was intrigued, and encouraged by her sister and father, she sent her reply. Several weeks later, she received a letter with an unbelievable story. This is the actual letter that Ethel Williams was said to have received, read by Craig Baird, creator and post of the podcast Canadian History X. Dear Miss Williams, I'm a mining engineer, and my work has taken me far into the interior of the country. Ordinarily, I finish my work and reach the settlements before the lakes and rivers close, and am able to make this trip by boat and canoe. Last fall, I delayed too long, and I was obliged to come out by sled, a distance of 700 miles. Shortly before I reached Lake Tagish, I fell in with three Indians and a Frenchman on the trail. We started to cross the lake, stopping midway on a small island to rest and sleep. While I slept, I dreamed. I saw a young girl dressed in light summer clothing standing in the deep snow around me. It was so real to me that I asked her who she was and why she was there. She told me her name was Ethel Williams and her home was in Syracuse, New York. She said she knew it was my intention to keep on the direct route over the lake, but that disaster lay in that direction, as there was open water covered by drifting snow. To be safe, I should go about 25 miles up the river, where I would find a safe crossing. At this point, I was awakened by the howling of dogs and the shouts of the Indians. It was three o'clock in the morning. They were making ready to go, and I told them of my dream, and they laughed at me. But I did not go with them. I followed the instructions of the dream girl, and when I reached Juno, the Indians and Frenchmen had not been seen. I headed a search party down the lake to the point where they would have reached the mainland, we found the canoes and their sleeping bag and another camp outfit floating in the open water. So, Miss Williams, I consider that you have saved my life, and I mailed the card to you from Juno. Yours sincerely, Donald Mack. The contents and story of this incredible letter appeared in newspapers across North America in the early spring of 1916, and I'm sorry to say, that's also where it ends. Though the tale was published everywhere from Alabama to Alaska, nothing more is known about the mysterious Donald Mack or his dream. Though the news articles claimed that Donald was a wealthy mining engineer, there doesn't seem to be any further record of the man, in Juno or otherwise. As for Ethel, her name would continue to appear in Syracuse newspapers throughout the 20th century, including an obituary in 1974. But it's unclear if that woman and the one in the story are the same person. If Ethel did exist, it seems that she never commented on her own story. No newspapers ever printed a follow-up or a denial, leaving us with a lot of questions. Did she really receive this letter in the mail completely unsolicited? Did she believe Donald's claim? 
Did she have a similar dream where she suddenly found herself in the midnight snow of the Yukon? Did she ever have any kind of premonition, or was this a complete surprise? Was the letter just a prank? We'll likely never know. Now, I love this story because of how strange it is. We've all heard stories about people who have premonitions about their death or the death of a loved one, disturbing visions or dreams that convince them to miss a flight or avoid driving that day, only to learn later that their last-minute decision led them to narrowly escape disaster. But most of those warnings come in the form of a vision of the danger, or in the form of a message from a loved one or perhaps a guardian angel. You don't often hear of a person learning of hidden dangers and receiving clear detour instructions from a total stranger living on the opposite corner of the continent. If this story is fiction, well, at least it's creative, though it's severely lacking in any payoff. Well, who knows, maybe Don's letter was just a scam, a prototype of today's Nigerian prince emails. Maybe if she replied a second time, his next letter would have offered her a reward and asked her for her banking information. As for how the story got to the papers in the first place, Ed Farrell, author of Strange Stories of Alaska and the Yukon, suggests that Mac's letter was real and that someone in the Williams family passed it along to the wire service, where an article was written and distributed to any paper hungry for a good story. Whether that's true is hard to say. The article is similar to others I've talked about in the past, where there's no official date included in the byline, making it hard to track. Most papers ran the story with no date at all, while others, like the Vancouver World and the Baltimore Evening Sun, simply added their own. The Bedford Daily Democrat, located in Bedford, Indiana, shamelessly ran the story undated and unaltered three years in a row, from 1917 to 1919 with each printing making it seem like the letter had just arrived. That makes it clear that this story, like so many others, was seen as a convenient way to fill the columns of empty newspapers and hopefully entertain readers. As a result, there wasn't a lot of journalistic pursuit or investigation. The story, if there was one, simply died on the vine. There is one small glimmer of hope, however. That obituary for a Mrs. Ethel Williams of Syracuse notes that she was originally from Canada and was survived by her daughter, Edna Hildreth, her grandson, Kurt, and her sister, Mrs. C. Froman of Toronto. So, if you're from Ontario and you have a rich Aunt Ethel from Syracuse in your family tree, you might want to ask around and see if a relative can shed a little more light on this strange winter tale. For our next story, we're heading east, over 4,000 kilometers across the country to the desolate and forbidding terrain of Labrador, isolated, remote, and ruggedly beautiful. The Inuktitut word for the region is Nunatsuak, which means the big land, an apt description for a place that is over 269,000 square kilometers, hosting roughly 26,000 souls who are scattered among the low shrubs, balsam fir, black spruce, and long, shallow lakes. Legendary explorer Jacques Cartier had a different name for it, which he coined in 1534 as he sailed through the Belle Isle Strait and looked north across its wide expanse. He called it the land God gave to Cain. 
It's a reference to a biblical story in the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, kills his brother Abel and is cursed by God to restlessly wander the barren lands of the earth forever. Keep that in mind as I tell you this next tale. Part 3. The Legend of Old Smoker The storm came on suddenly. Christmas morning had been calm and crisp. The sky had been clear and glacier blue when Jack harnessed his dogs and set out for his trapline. But with a sound like a clap of thunder, an eastern wind had come roaring across the barren tundra and whipped up days of drift into great white clouds like smoke from a frozen fire. The gray-green landscape of the Labrador coast changed to a featureless world of white. Every rock, every tree, every trace of the trail was blotted out. Even the sulking sun was a pallid red-brown that seeped through the milky sky like dried blood from an old wound. The dogs were nervous, still hauling forward but panting and running wide in their blindness, catching their leads on pillars of ice that rose up from the ground. The bursts of broken ice flew up with the blasting wind and rhyme to cut at their faces, forcing them to shift direction. The lashing snow drove into Jack's eyes and inside his clothes, and the frigid wind threatened to freeze his eyelids together. Though well-dressed for the weather, Jack began to feel a deep and unsettling cold creep into his body. His bones ached beneath his wet skin, and he could barely keep his balance. Lost in the blizzard, their only hope of survival was to find shelter. But where, within that world of white, could they go? Another thunderous crack boomed over the howl of the wind. Jack turned toward it and saw a shape materialize within the falling snow and move toward him. It was so faint that at first he thought it was a mirage, until he heard the barking of dogs that weren't his own. He realized that the shape was a man driving a hummatuk, a low-slung dog sled of traditional Inuit design, that had been painted completely white. Each dog that pulled the sled was also white, as was its mysterious driver, clad head to toe in white fur. In his hand was a long, white whip that he drew back and snapped forward, and each crack of the seal skin exploded in the air, shifting the blowing snow and, for a moment, it seemed to Jack, briefly stopping the onslaught of the storm. Jack yelled out a greeting, but received no reply. Instead, the mysterious sledder cracked the whip again, and the white hummatuk raced ahead of him. Jack's dogs instinctively followed. They chased that pale shadow for miles, until, at last, Jack spotted a structure in the distance. It was an old fisherman's cabin with smoke streaming from the chimneys. A figure appeared at the door and waved. Jack breathed a huge sigh of relief and stopped his dogs, but the stranger in white carried on and vanished in the storm. After Jack unharnessed his team and put them up for the night, he gratefully joined the two men inside their cabin and warmed himself by the fire. He looked to his host. I had hoped that other driver would come in too, Jack said. I wanted to thank him. Thank who? the fisherman asked. The man in white who came ahead of me, Jack answered. He led me to this place. If it wasn't for him, I'd be done for. The fisherman shook his head 
puzzled. I watched you come in, he said quietly. There was no one out there but you. That can't be, Jack said. We followed him through the storm for almost an hour. He was dressed all in white, his clothing, his dogs, everything. The second fisherman looked up from his net. That must have been old Smoker, the old man muttered. People swear they've seen him when a blizzard rolls in. They say he was a trapper like you until he got caught in a storm about a hundred years ago and never got out. Now they say you can hear his whip crack just before the snow really starts to blow, and that he'll lead you to safety if you're lost. The first fisherman scoffed. He's in the business of saving souls all right, mostly his. As the storm raged outside and the dogs happily ate their supper, Jack sat with a cup of rum and listened as the old men told their tale. There was a time when he was one of the most hated men in the region. Most say his Christian name was Esau Gillingham, but most folks just called him Smoker. A daring trapper from Newfoundland, he crossed the strait in the winter of 1910 and came north to Labrador in search of a larger supply and less competition. He found what he was looking for, and the furs came easy, but they didn't pay very well. Soon, Esau traded his trap line for a secret still, which he hid deep in the black spruce forest near Newtok. Then he set to work, brewing some of the most vile spirits anyone has ever dared to drink, made from spruce cones, sugar, and yeast. The vicious concoction took on the flavor of the black smoke that billowed out of the burning spruce, and it was full of impurities and cloudy white. It burned the eyes and throat and made you cough after each sip. The other trappers took to calling it smoke, and Esau became smoker. He spent that first summer sailing up and down the coast selling his hard liquor to folks familiar with hard living. In the winter, he lashed a keg of the stuff to his hummock and made his deliveries by dog sled. Now, the smoke affected people in different ways. The lucky ones would simply get sick or pass out, but some would fall into a rage and destroy their homes or attack their friends and families. Others would permanently lose their sight or their minds. They would claw off their clothes and wander outside. Some died from exposure, others simply never recovered. But the living up here was hard, liquor was scarce, and the smoke was so addictive that many continued to choke down his poison in spite of the risks. The people were suffering and something had to be done, so eventually word of this chaos reached the Newfoundland Rangers and a team was sent out across the ice. They chased him down, smashed his still, and threw him in jail in St. John's. He served 12 long months in that jail cell, but his time inside did nothing to change his convictions. Within days of his release, Smoker was back, this time with a plan. He traveled to the forbidden places where no one else would go, the sacred spots, the abandoned villages that were emptied by plague, and there he set his traps. He focused solely on the white animals, ermine, arctic fox, and rabbit, until he could clothe himself head to toe in pure white skins. Then he sought a dog team, and through theft and force, he gathered a number of all-white huskies. He painted his homichook white, lashed a white keg of smoke to the rear, and set to work. 
white death and madness came again to the land, and though the rangers were always in pursuit, they could never catch Old Smoker. With his white sled, dogs, and suit, he was nearly invisible in the winter landscape, and would simply vanish in the silent snow. From a secret cabin in the woods, surrounded by hidden bear traps, he would brew his terrible smoke and torment the population with his callousness and his cruelty, stealing, assaulting, even kidnapping and killing, and always peddling his demon drink. This went on for years, with the rangers too fearful of his traps to approach his hideout, and he eventually became a legend in the region. A ghostly white boogeyman who, parents warned, would steal unruly children and carry them off to the forest. After spending years on the run and contributing to the destruction of countless people and their families, Smoker finally returned to Newfoundland. No one knows exactly how he died. Some say his own drink did him in, draining him of his sight, his vitality, and ultimately his mind. Others say he fell off a fishing platform and broke his back, dying in hospital days later. Some believe he was shot and killed in an act of vengeance after he kidnapped and assaulted a local woman, while others say he died of old age, warm in his bed. However it happened, they say he was repentant in those final moments and sought forgiveness. Instead of being condemned to hell, he asked God to let his restless spirit roam Labrador forever and make up for the sin and ruin that he had sown in his younger days. From that moment, Smoker's ghost was transported back to this wild country, doomed to drive his dogs to the end of time. Sometimes people hear him and his team running outside their cabin, or see him on the hill cutting through a stormy sky. But he leaves no tracks, no trace aside from these stories. They say he rides the edge of storms to warn others, and to help the lost find their way home. In life, he was hated and feared, but now, in a strange way, he has become a comfort. No one fears him when they see him. Not anymore. They know that each life he saves is one more payment on the debt he owes for all the lives he helped destroy. Part 4. Finding the Truth of the Phantom Smoker is one of Labrador's most beloved and enduring legends. Tales of him can be found on television and YouTube, in podcasts, and in books of great Canadian ghost stories. He has come to the rescue of countless people, often outsiders, who don't fully appreciate how dangerous and volatile the weather can be in that part of the country. In this way, a fierce winter storm and a mysterious phantom serve as the unofficial welcoming party for some of Labrador's more hapless newcomers. Now, most modern retellings often include the same backstory, detailing Smoker's past as a ruthless criminal, his poisonous smoke, his white suit, sled, and dogs, even going out of their way to specify exactly how many dogs he had. This kind of detail gives the impression that the story is as much history as it is legend, and that impression is emphasized even further when many of these stories choose to name the Phantom. If you search online for The Phantom Trapper of Labrador, or look for the story in books on Canadian mysteries, legends, and ghost stories, it's likely that the story you'll find will tell you that Old Smoker was once known as Esau Gillingham, 
or sometimes Dillingham, an infamous trapper and criminal from Labrador history. Esau became a legend in his own right, most famously as the mysterious, simultaneously hated and celebrated protagonist in Harold Horwood's novel The White Eskimo. And it is from that combination of historical figure and historical fiction where we get Smoker's reputation as a moonshiner and murderer, and his iconic white clothing and dogs. But Esau didn't die from consuming his horrible smoke, and he certainly didn't use his dying breath to repent his wicked life. In the Smoker legend, Esau either dies poisoned from his own alcohol or humbled in the hospital. In the novel, Esau spends the twilight of his life being revered by the locals as the White Spirit, then vanishes into the wild in search of an unspoiled paradise, never to be seen again. The reality is far less romantic. According to Gary Saunders, a Newfoundland writer who knew the infamous trapper, Esau was found dead on the sandy shore of Gander Lake, his pants around his ankles and his eyes pecked out by crows, presumably the victim of a heart attack or stroke while heeding the call of nature. Now that's a far cry from the dignified death of a folk hero or the remorseful death of a repentant villain. The fact is, stories of Smoker were being shared long before Esau Gillingham ever set foot in that part of the country. In the late winter of 1931, a British doctor and medical missionary named Harry Padden traveled across Labrador by dog sled and kept a daily journal. In late February, about six miles southwest of Pottles Bay, Dr. Padden, his companion, and their 11 dogs were forced to take refuge with a kind woman and her sons as a heavy storm blew in and lingered for over a week. Huddled inside around the fire, they passed the time with the age-old practice of storytelling. And Dr. Padden recorded in his journal one story that he found especially interesting. Here's a quote read by Mark Norman, creator and host of the Folklore Podcast. Wednesday, February the 25th to Sunday, March the 1st. Wet snow. Rain. Brooks and ponds bursting open. Marshes. Morasses of water and slush. Once, 17 years ago, I was held up for four days and thought it phenomenal. This is the eighth day, and no sign of improvement. We have talked as never before, and much hitherto unknown has come to light. We have heard of the phantom teamster, who drives eight black or black and white dogs, sometimes with a companion. Hudson's Bay Company's clerks, as well as Labrador men, have vouched for him. He leaves no track, but he can crack a whip, and with his whip he drove back two runaway puppies that chased his hamutic from one house. One night our hosts, who were expecting their mother back from a visit to relatives, heard and saw a strange team drive up in the winding path which leads through stunted trees to their house. It was moonlight. Thinking some traveller had given their mother a lift, they went to greet her, and to bid him welcome. The teamster was unharnessing his dogs, and Matt called to him to come right up. There was no sign of Mrs Oliver, and, 
when the lads advanced to shake hands, the teamster vanished with his team. No one is afraid of Smoker, as this apparition has been christened. Dr. Padden noted some time later that he personally interviewed the HBC clerks in question and confirmed their story. Just like the modern-day legends, the clerks had encountered a ghostly team of black dogs with a driver outside Rigolet and watched him vanish in the snow. There were no tracks, and inquiries at three houses proved that no team had passed through the area. Now that was in 1931 three years before the Newfoundland Rangers was established, and 18 years before Esau Gillingham was found dead. That means Dr. Padden's log entry proves that despite all of the modern stories telling us that Gillingham became the elusive phantom trapper, the ghost of Old Smoker was riding the stormy Labrador landscape at least two decades before he died. Note also how Dr. Padden makes no mention of Smoker being clad in white furs or driving a white hamutuk pulled by white dogs. In fact, he specifically notes how Smoker's dogs are black or black and white. There's no mention of Smoker being the ghost of a bootlegger or criminal either, or of his so-called smoke, the home-brewed alcohol said to have killed so many. He's not even labeled as a phantom trapper, but simply a teamster, a person who drives a team of animals. So what happened? How did these two separate legends become one? Patty Way, a researcher and writer from Happy Valley Goose Bay, might have the answer. Writing for the magazine Them Days, Way suggests that the well-intentioned Newfoundland author John E. Hood is responsible for the confusion. It seems that Hood combined the details of Old Smoker with those of Esau Gillingham, resulting in the story Ghost Trail of the Labrador, found in his 1966 book Hunters of the North. In 1984, twelve years after the publication of White Eskimo, Harold Horwood's popular novel, John Hood's story was renamed to Ghost Trail of the White Eskimo, and included in the anthology The Newfoundland Character which was used for a number of years in schools across the province to help kids improve their knowledge of history and reading comprehension. The editor's introduction to the story suggests its authenticity, and it's accompanied by questions for a classroom discussion designed to ensure that young readers will conflate Esau's story with the much older legend of Old Smoker, here renamed as The White Eskimo. There is even a suggestion at the end for students to read the novel by Harold Horwood, in this way, generations of school kids and future writers and storytellers were instructed to conflate two separate legends into one singular story. Patty Way laments this fact in her article, saying, quote, By combining these two personages into one legend, in effect, Old Smoker has been diminished for Labrador's youth, as the printed but inaccurate version gains precedence in modern day over the oral traditions of our people, end quote. So if Smoker is not the ghost of Esau Gillingham, who is he? Luckily, Paddy Way has an answer for that question as well. It seems that the name Smoker was, at one time, the name of an Inuit family living on the island of Ponds in Labrador, and Old Smoker was the patriarch of that family. Way tells us that, before the mid-1800s, the Labrador Inuit identified by only one name rather than a first name and last name 
So while Smoker had several children, including a son named John Smoker and a daughter named Jane Smoker, he was known simply as Old Smoker. Some say he was a postman who used his hamutuk to run the mail between Cartwright, Rigolet, and Goose Bay. Others say he was a fisherman and trapper. Perhaps he was both. Either way, it's generally agreed that he was driving his dog team in the winter of 1850 when he was caught in a sudden snowstorm and vanished without a trace. Ever since, the people of Labrador have reported seeing or hearing Smoker, often just before a storm. Here we find the true nature of the legend, where Smoker is not a tortured sinner and outsider who is cursed to wander the land forever like the biblical Cain. He is, instead, an Enoch man, born and raised in the region, who was consumed by and merged with the winter weather. In these stories, smoke is not a reference to a particularly nasty home brew, but a term in the local vernacular to describe clouds of snow and spray that drift across the tundra and taiga of Labrador. There is also a high hill inside of Black Bear Bay, which many indigenous people once called Smoker Mountain, but no one is certain whether it got its name from the man or from the puffs of powder that float down its sides. Either way, the spirit of Smoker is just as intangible as the smoke, and just as timeless as the mountain. And what do the locals say about Smoker? Well, in certain sections of Labrador, the distant crack of a sealskin whip is a signal that children should hurry home. And to fit our theme for the night, there's even a story of Smoker urging folks home at Christmas time as night begins to fall, in this memory from Elizabeth Keefe of Black Tickle, as quoted by Patty Way. Elizabeth and her mother were going jannying, another word for mummering, when folks from Newfoundland and Labrador dress in silly costumes and visit their neighbors at Christmas, when Smoker made his presence known. These next two quotes are read by Chrissy Flynn Lee, co-creator and host of the Some Weird podcast. I believe in Smoker. I knows all about him. Me and Mommy was going into Brook Janion. Just before dark, we heard this old fella crack his whip. Mom said there'd be a storm if you heard him. We were walking along and he took us clear off our legs, but he didn't hurt us. You could see him, but not plain enough to see who was with him. Elizabeth Keefe Many Hamutuk drivers have caught sight of Smoker in the distance or crossed his path and knew that the dark clouds on the horizon would soon blanket the landscape in snow and shadow. In Rigolette, they tell stories of a ghostly red light that will appear before those who get lost in the wilderness. Follow it, they say, and Smoker will lead you to the safety of the forest or an isolated cabin. Ignore it, and he'll leave you to your fate. Those who are safely at home when a storm descends might hear him pass as the weather rages outside, mistaking the ghost for a family member or lost traveler. Here's just one story of such an occurrence, told by Margaret Davis and quoted by Patty Way. One night, when Mary and I were small, we were sitting at the table in Cartwright doing our homework. It was blowing up a real blizzard outdoors. The wind was howling and the snow was hitting the window panes. All of a sudden, we heard a dog team drive up. When he turned the corner of the house, we could hear the dog's traces slap up against the side of the house. Don, my brother, 
got his parka on and he went out to see whoever it was and to help him put away his team. He was outside a while. He came back in and he said there wasn't a sign of a soul outdoors. We heard it though, as plain as day between the gusts of wind. Don said it must have been Smoker. Margaret Davis Finally, though they say old Smoker can never be tracked and never be caught, there is one story where he stopped, just for a moment, to give his daughter a ride. The story goes that one day, sometime in the late 1800s, Smoker's daughter Jane had a fight with her husband and stepped outside to cool off. It wasn't long before the family heard the sound of a dog team drive up to the house, stop for a moment, and continue on. When the family came outside, Jane was gone. Hours went by, the sky grew dark, and just as they began to worry, Jane walked in. They asked her where she had been, and she told them that she had gone on a trip with her father, Old Smoker, who by this time had been dead for several years. He had pulled up to the house in his hummutuk, she jumped in the box, and they went for a ride, from Open Bay to Battle Harbor and back, a round trip of nearly 250 kilometers. I have to admit, I like this version of Smoker a lot more. He's not some cartoony villain or storybook specter. He's just a regular guy who became a sort of spirit of storms, and his story became a memorable way to communicate to others about the dangers of inclement weather. He also brings a glimmer of humanity and hope to the natural world that would otherwise be merciless and indifferent, by helping others, warning them, and leading them to safety, not out of his own self-interest, not to save his own soul, but because that's what you do in the North. You look out for each other. Life can be brutal, and you need to face it together. If you see a storm on the horizon, you tell others. If someone wanders near your home, you welcome them in to share your supper and a story. And if someone is lost or struggling, you help lead them home. Ultimately, Smoker embodies the spirit of the North in more ways than one, and exists as a fascinating combination of humanity and nature, the spiritual and the physical. Chaos and comfort. Sightings of Smoker were once common in Labrador, but these days you don't hear much about him unless it's another retelling of the old Esau Gillingham story. It's likely that technology is partly to blame. As more people have given up their dog sled for a speedy skidoo, the chances of getting lost in a blizzard or mistaking a passing stranger for the famous phantom have undoubtedly dwindled. But many say he's still out there, cracking his whip, sliding past darkened houses, and driving his dogs on the edge of a storm, searching for those in need. Part 5. The Spirit of the North If you grew up in B.C. or the Yukon, you might be familiar with Robert Service's famous poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee. Written in 1907, it tells the story of a prospector named Sam McGee, who froze to death near a Yukon lake and was cremated by his friend in the boiler of a derelict steamer. When the narrator opens the furnace to check on the burning remains, he is shocked to find Sam's ghost sitting upright in the makeshift crematorium with a big, satisfied smile on his face, enjoying the warmth. Despite its dark themes and black humor, 
The poem is often read to kids in school, and many people, including myself, still remember the beautiful and vibrant illustrations of Canadian artist Ted Harrison that accompanied the poem. What they might not remember, however, is the fact that The Cremation of Sam McGee is actually a Christmas poem. The titular character falls ill on Christmas night and dies the next day, and the narrator spends the next several days hauling McGee's frozen corpse on his sled until he finally discovers an abandoned steamer. Now this places the events of the poem well within Twelve Tide, that magical and mysterious period between Christmas Day and January 5th or 6th. So, if one of your yearly traditions is to read the night before Christmas on Christmas Eve, well, you might consider swapping it out for this weird, darkly humorous poem. Now, Robert Service made his living transforming his impressions of the Canadian North into verse, and though he's best known for his narrative poems like The Cremation of Sam McGee and The Shooting of Dan McGrew, he constantly put his pen to the task of articulating the dangerously alluring and terrifyingly beautiful nature of the northern landscape. One of the most memorable examples is his personification of the spirit of the north in The Law of the Yukon. The poem is essentially a warning to outsiders, newcomers, anyone foolish enough or audacious enough to enter the realm of the northern wilds without exercising the appropriate caution or showing the proper respect. Such people might be unfamiliar with the intricacies of the weather and the landscape. They might, for example, attempt to cross a partly frozen lake or be blindsided by a sudden and deadly storm. The poem's penultimate couplet is likely the most impactful. Quote, this is the law of the Yukon, that only the strong shall thrive, that surely the weak shall perish, and only the fit survive. End quote. The majority of the work reads like a laundry list of specific ways that the weak have been killed. Quote, one by one I dismayed them, frightened them sore with my glooms. One by one I betrayed them unto my manifold dooms, drowned them like rats in my rivers, starved them like curs on my plains, rotted the flesh that was left them, poisoned the blood in their veins, burst with my winter upon them, searing forever their sight, lashed them with fungus-white faces, whimpering wild in the night, staggering wild in the storm whirl, stumbling mad through the snow, frozen stiff in the ice pack, brittle and bent like a bow, featureless, formless, forsaken, scented by wolves in their flight, left for the wind to make music through ribs that are glittering white." End quote. And yet, despite all that primeval danger and death, the Yukon, and the North in general, has an undeniable quality that draws people in with promises of fortune and freedom. It is the last great terrestrial frontier. In a lecture at Oxford University in 1991, Margaret Atwood noted that Service's mystic treatment of the North was, quote, reflecting an already existing body of lore and cliché, some of which was paralleled by actual travelers' tales, end quote, summarizing that, quote, popular lore and popular literature established early that the North was uncanny, awe-inspiring, in an almost religious way, hostile to white men, but alluring, that it would lead you on and do you in, that it would drive you crazy, and finally, would claim you for its own." End quote. And that's what we see in these stories of the dream girl and old smoker. 
Some people are consumed by the North and others are saved, not by their own strength, but by some sort of magic. And I think that sense of magic is what makes the North so alluring and such a great background for some of the most timeless tales. In a lot of ways, the North is a completely different and somewhat paradoxical place where the laws of the rest of the world don't always apply. The rules of creation are thinner at the top and more easily bent. The North is, after all, the land of the midnight sun and the home of the mysterious and magnificent Northern Lights, which are said to be, according to some Inuit legends, the spirits of the dead playing a celestial sports game using a walrus skull as a ball. The North is the kind of magical place where the ghost of a frozen man can find relief as his body is consumed by a smoldering fire, where we can watch the dead pull off epic trick shots and score game-winning goals in the shimmering sky where strangers can connect through dreams over incredible distances, where a person can be claimed by the North and become a part of it, adding their own humanity to its roiling eternity, and where an immortal toy maker can live in solitude with a group of elves and flying reindeer. It's a place that reminds us that even at Christmas, you can't have the light without the dark. That's it for this episode. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who helped me out with their fantastic vocal performances this episode. In order of appearance, Craig Baird of the Canadian History X podcast was the voice of Donald Mack. Mark Norman of the Folklore podcast was the voice of Dr. Harry Patton. Chrissy Flynn Lee of the Some Weird podcast was the voice of Elizabeth Keefe and Margaret Davis. I strongly recommend you give them all a listen. And a big thanks to you for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. I'll be back in the new year with more great Canadian legends, lies, and lore. Until then, have a Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. And remember, if you ever find yourself in the snow and a spectral stranger appears before you, consider following their advice. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams, with sound design by Braden Alexander. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our business manager. Jordan Heath Rawlings is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website, Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.